I'm Doug Storm. Welcome to Interchange. Today's show is Driving the Peace Train. And perhaps unsurprisingly, our opening song tonight is Richie Haven's version of Cat Stevens' Peace Train. And while this song asks us to ride the peace train, our show today asserts the need for engineers of peace. Now I've been happy lately Thinking about good things to come And I believe it could be Something good has begun Oh, out on the edge of darkness There rides a peace train Oh, peace train, take this country Come on, take me home again Smiling lately Thinking about good things to come And I believe it could be Something good has begun Oh, peace train sounding loud Right on peace train Our guest is Eric Dawson, one of those engineers And one who spent 25 years training others to take up the burden of peace He's just published a book called Putting Peace First Seven Commitments to Change the World that distills some of those decades of work and wisdom. We live in a culture that celebrates the flamboyant leader, the great orator, the creative dynamo, the celebrity, someone to follow and so relieve ourselves of the burden of responsibility. But peace isn't about leaders and followers. It's about you and me making all our choices serve the very idea. You might remember the words of A.J. Musty, radical labor leader and pacifist who said of organized labor that when it undertakes to write and produce its own movies, to do its own radio broadcasting, then it gives notice that it expects to do its own dreaming henceforth. This is of great importance, for the dreams that people dream, the visions they see, determine how they act. Musty wanted labor unions to become holistic communities united in building the good society, not just at work, but at life. The same lesson applies for building a world without war and aggression. That is, committing to building pathways to peace in our communities. It's action and the reaction it engenders that brings us into being, that makes possible new worlds. Do your thing and I shall know you, says Ralph Waldo Emerson. We begin first with taking stock, how our circles of concern have been shrinking and our moral imaginations have atrophied asking mostly, what do I get out of it if I do this? And now, Driving the Peace Train with Eric Dawson on Interchange on WFHB. Eric Dawson, welcome to Interchange. Thank you. Thanks for having me. My pleasure. Now, you are the CEO and co-founder of Peace First. Do you mind starting out telling us a little bit about that organization? Sure. Uh, Peace First is an organization that was founded by young people. I was 18 when we uh, when we began this adventure. 
um, really around two big ideas, uh, one being that, that young people sit at the bottom of the privilege pyramid, right? No matter how you slice it, young people bear the brunt of the decisions that adults make on their behalf and are rarely invited to be part of the solution. And so we wanted to help unleash young people's moral imaginations to solve real life problems. Um, and the second was around this idea that the way that we solve problems feels broken, that we are drawing our circles of concern smaller and smaller, our ability to um, stretch outside of what we know, to take risks, uh, to work with other people. So we wanted to build a new model of youth engagement that was youth-led, youth-created, and cared as much about who young people are as what they do. And so Peace First is a global community of young people who are making the world a better, safer, more just place using compassion, courage, and collaborative leadership as our drivers. Hmm. You mentioned moral imagination there. Can you expand on that a bit? Yeah. Um, there is, uh, and I, I want to be careful how I say this, but but we have in this country what I like to describe as the youth service industrial complex, mm. which is where we invite young people to participate in civic life, but it's on adult terms and adult structures and adult timelines. And it's all about outputs, right? It's how many hours you volunteer, how much money you raise, how many cookies you bake. Um, and if you look at all of the great movements that have built social progress in our country, um, they've ultimately been based on um, big concepts of, of morality. Uh, who are we? Or, or more important, um, whose are we? Uh, to whom are we accountable? Um, and so uh, young people are powerful moral agents. Um, big questions, uh, curiosity. Um, you know, when you think about how we first learned concepts of justice, it's by playing tag and, and jumping rope. Like these are these are the ways that we explore and create moral models about what a just uh, world looks like. And so, what we want to do is harness harness young people's ability to think and design and build those worlds um, and enact them in, in real life. Hmm. Now, you also said there that how we solve problems is broken. Can you expand on that also? Yes. Well, uh, unfortunately, we don't have to look far to find examples of ways in which our civic framework is frayed, um, whether we look at political discourse um, or something as simple. I, I, I took my son to an amusement park the other day, and we love roller coasters. He's 10. Um, and we could spend an extra 85 bucks to get these fast lane passes that basically let you jump the line. Um, and we have all sorts of those moments where if you've got enough money or enough connections, you get to jump the line, uh, whether it's private schools or uh, private roads, um, private parks. Um, and so what's happening is this real separation of a shared sense of responsibility. Um, you know, what happens is people will often enter a question or a moment and ask, well, what do I get out of this? Um, sometimes people will, will take it a step further and, and ask, what do I have to give? Um, but rarely do we take that third step and ask, what am I willing to give up? Mm. Um, and it is that question that defines democracy, mm. um, and common good. Like, what am I willing to sacrifice in order for others to achieve their goals in life? 
And so as I think about the dialogue and narrative um, in our public spaces, um, it is, uh, you don't belong here, you're not like us, uh, those people. And if I've learned anything in, in 25 years of doing social justice work, it's that pronouns matter. Um, whenever someone talks about those children or those young people, um, as opposed to our children, our young people, it's really telling about where someone's locus of responsibility lies. And so that those systems of how we come together to build the beloved community um, feels really frayed in our public spaces. This is Doug Storm on Interchange. My guest is Eric Dawson, CEO and co-founder of Peace First and author of Putting Peace First, Seven Commitments to Change the World, who tells young people that they aren't the future we're waiting for, but the present we need now. You've written a book called Putting Peace First, published by Viking Press, which is marketed to a young adult or more specifically a secondary school audience. Can you give us a brief outline of that before we go into some of the details? Sure. And, and I'll share a confession with you. I, I had I had no interest in writing a book. Um, <laughs> you know, I've, I've been uh, leading an organization f- for a while now, and, and often what comes up is is people ask you, well, when are you going to write a book about your work? And I realized I, ha- I had no interest in, in, in reading that book, let alone writing it. <laughs> um, and then a, a, a dear friend said that, that I should write the book that I would want to read. Um, and I thought about myself as, a, as an angry 14-year-old uh, growing up in the Midwest who, who wanted to change a world that felt very unjust in many ways. Um, and so I, I, I wrote this as a, as a love letter uh, to young people. Um, as an invitation for young people that, um, that who you are matters as much as what you do, um, that you don't have to wait to make a difference. Um, and in fact, you have a responsibility to make a difference. So it's, it's part manifesto, uh, part chicken soup for the soul with really powerful (laughs) stories, um, and a how to guide. Um, this is how you go about creating a project to make your community better. Nice. Now, you mentioned being an angry kid there. It's one of the things I liked uh, at the start of your book to sort of begin a book about peace or being a peacemaker with anger. Yeah, it's so interesting. Um, you know, and, and we went back and forth about, about you know, in, in embedding this in, in the language of peacemaking because, um, you know, it's, it's peace is such a such an interesting concept. And it's one that is um, so often I- imbued with um what it's not, right? It's an absence of, of war. It's an absence of tension. It's passive. It is um, holding hands and singing songs. And um, we wanted to create something that was much more um, muscular and engaged. Um, you know, Dr. King had, had uh, counseled us that the peace isn't merely the absence of, of tension, but the presence of, of justice. Um, and so what we want to do with this book, what, what I wanted to do was, um, to honor that anger is not the problem. You know, aggression, uh, is problematic, 
but but that that feeling of frustration that that so many young people have right now is what they should be feeling and then what young people do with that is what we want to help uh, help them do. Mm-hmm. Good. Uh, so you then move on to you've been lied to, and again, it's a, it's a great provocation, and it was a bit of a twist to me as a as a left political person myself. Uh, I tend to always think about the lies of tradition or lies of social standards, the myths of our culture, but that's not what you're talking about here. What's the big lie you're talking about? It's funny. I'll, I'll share a story with you. I um, was invited to speak at an elementary school to their fifth grade graduation a couple of years ago. And it's a school that I loved and had been very involved in. Um, and I had, had said to, to the students there that their teachers had been lying to them um, since <laughs> kindergarten. Like everyone looks at me in horror uh, before I continued, which is, which is that the message that young people get from adults is that they're the future. Right. We, we say this in school assemblies. We say this in faith based communities. Whitney Houston sang about it. We, we tell young people that if they study hard and stay committed, that they're going to be great artists, activists, leaders someday, which has the perverse effect of telling young people that they're none of those things right now. It's time for a break. We're listening to 10,000 Years, Peace is Now, by the group Live, off of Mental Jewelry. When we return to driving the peace train, we'll hear about commitment number six, work with your enemies. Stay with us for more with Eric Dawson on putting peace first on Interchange on WFHB.
Welcome back to Interchange on WFHB. I'm Doug Storm. Today's show is Driving the Peace Train with co-founder of Peace First, Eric Dawson. His new book details seven commitments to change the world. For this segment, we talk about the ways we disempower our youth and how often adults are obstacles to peacemaking activities. A Pink Floyd song comes to mind here. But also we hear of a great example of commitment six, work with your enemies. As you said at the beginning, you know, uh, kids are acted upon and, um, you know, I've seen many movements for uh, like increasing or, or introducing voting rights uh, younger and younger to, to the people who are actually affected by policies that will come in and affect their lives. Right. Um, so what you're pointing to, though, is that activism or uh, is is being active, right? The, the commitment to to this is not about not doing things, but rather um, doing things. So how do you define that? I think in general, we are very confused about how we understand young people right now. Um, we are both demanding young people take on increasingly complex sets of responsibilities on, on social media, stress and anxiety about higher education, we're filling their days with activities, uh, whether that be work or lessons. And so there's this real push to make young people um, more and more adult-like. And then we disempower them, and, and we do that for, for longer. And so you know, w- what I wanted to say um, in this book is that young people have the power to make a difference in their communities, not someday, but right now. And that they have a responsibility to to take an action. Um, you know, one of the stories I talk about um, is, is a young man named Matthew, whose uh, brother was being bullied in his school, and his brother had been this sort of lovely spirit whose friends had turned on him, and so he found his brother withdrawing, and decided that he wanted to something to be better for his brother, and, and he kept waiting. He kept waiting for uh, his teachers to step up. His his parents to do something. He was looking around to all of the adults um, to do the thing adults are supposed to do, uh, which is to help keep kids safe. And he realized that they weren't. And in fact, he realized that they were just as confused as he was. And so he realized that that person he'd been been waiting for was himself um, and that he had to take that responsibility. He had to act. Mm. Yeah, that's uh, that's a very important point. It's a further you you elucidated there too. The issue is frequently that the adults are obstacles to these changes, and um, so there's there's got to be an element of, of of training or educating those people already in positions of power and management that that are actually obstacles to this change. I, I, you know, one of the things I often joke about, I'm, I'm a youth worker, but, but the vast majority of my work is with adults. Mm-hmm. Um, young people get this. Uh, they don't need to be schooled on injustices. Um, uh, 
uh, what they need are adult allies. You know, it, it's been interesting. We've been supporting a lot of young people doing work around guns, access to guns, gun safety after the shootings in Parkland. And there's this whole narrative, which I think is well-intentioned, which is that you know young people are going to lead the way. Young people will figure this out. And what I'm hearing from young people is, uh, yeah, no. Uh, I mean, w- we'll do our part, but y'all, y'all mess this world up. Like right. you've got a responsibility. Um, and so I've interviewed, you know, at this point, probably hundreds of thousands of young people who've done really interesting, creative peacemaking work. Um, and I've asked them about the role that adults play. And it, it boils down to two things. One is that adults provide resources. Um, so they let young people lead, but they're there to help answer questions, to bring wisdom, you know, what, what the Quaker community calls um, eldering, mm-hmm. like providing that that guidance, support and love behind young people's leadership. Um, and the second thing they talked about is is adults getting out of the way, adult absence as, as, a, as a way of uh, that adults have supported them, you know, kind of stepping out. I was meeting with a group of teachers uh, in central Ohio uh, earlier this week you know, they're, they're amazing, dedicated group of, of adult educators. And like all adults, they're, they're terrified of, of letting kids fail, of, of giving them um, spaces where things might fall apart, forgetting that, that that is how we learn. You know, you, you don't get mad at an at a 11-month-old for uh, falling down as they're learning to walk, right? You don't stop and say, okay, I'm just going to carry you till you're 30, <laughs> That, that this process of falling down and getting back up again and trying things out is essential to human development. Um, and so that this role that adults can play in letting young people have that space. So I think of it as, as creating that, that broader safety container um, to make sure that they're there um, when, they're, when they're asked for, um, but then really giving young people the space and the freedom uh, to learn and grow and, and to make mistakes. This is Doug Storm on Interchange. My guest is Eric Dawson, CEO and co-founder of Peace First and author of Putting Peace First, Seven Commitments to Change the World, who tells young people that they aren't the future we're waiting for, but the present we need now. Cultural critiques, especially on the left, are, are critical of institutions and people being shaped by institutions. We then begin to be critical of people uh, and forget the institutions sometimes. Reformists m- imagine uh, change comes from within, and I think that's a big part of your book is understanding how we have that responsibility to change and that perhaps you can reshape institutions from the inside. But again, institutional gatekeepers are difficult. Obviously, adults, as you were talking, were difficult. They are not often peacemakers, and they often do harm, even unintentional harm, right? Parents often harm children without necessarily intending it, although some parents, of course, do. Um, And then the teachers that we've all experienced in our life tend to be those we don't speak too highly of. And I think the interesting part about this is, as you spoke, to train people we think are actually doing work with with children in those contexts in which I think a left critique shows that those particular contexts are the ones that are creating the harm in many ways. So 
many people are against school generally, right, as an institutional, uh, uh, a place that repeats or um, what am I looking for? Reinforces, you know, institutional reinforcement of cultural hierarchy, cultural authoritarianism, things of that nature. Um, is is this a real, I mean, do you discover this throughout that there are people and places that are open to what you're doing, but the institutions themselves are are recalcitrant? You know, it's so interesting. The, um, the story I'm thinking of in, in your question, and it's a story in my book, is, is, is a story of, of Baba Tunde, mm -hmm. um, is a young man in Baltimore who was walking home from from an internship and, and stopped by the police on suspicion of, of, of drug possession and, and thrown to the ground, handcuffed, threatened to have the, the crap beat out of him. Um, and then, and then released, um, not, not a unusual occurrence, uh, for an African American male teenager, uh, in Baltimore. Um, and he took that experience and made a movie about it where, where he interviewed young people of color about their experiences with, with policing. Um, but, but he didn't stop there. Um, he then went and interviewed police officers, um, and he asked them about their experiences, um, what's it like for you when you approach a group of teenagers you don't know? Like, what goes through your mind? Uh, what do you worry about? What keeps you up at night? Um, like, like genuinely wanting to understand why. Um, like, with a question mark, not a, not a period or an exclamation point. Um, and his insight, of course, was that police officers and young people are terrified of each other because they don't they don't know each other. They don't they don't share um, an understanding of of who one another is, and so. Um, as a 17 year old went, went and, and trained, um, the Baltimore police force on how to work with young people, um, and, and doing that by having young people and police officers play one another in different scenarios. Um, so the police officer was in that situation of being stopped, um, and interrogated, um, and really exploring that, that deep sense of empathy, uh, of what it means to be in someone else's, uh, shoes, uh, and, and Bob Tunney went on and, uh, with his with his colleagues and trained two thirds of the Baltimore police force. Um, and it was interesting because his story is in the book. And, and I let all the young people review their stories to make sure that I captured it. Um, and, and he pushed back uh, on on and, and I made edits uh, based on what he shared because it, it sounded it sounded too neat. Mm -hmm. um, and um, you know what he wanted to make clear and what I wanted to make clear in the book is he he didn't leave that situation loving police officers like this wasn't that that journey where now Baba Tunde is entering the police academy um you know for him he's still clear that the police are an occupying force in his community that's how he sees it that's how he experiences it but what he came to realize is that police police officers are also a victim of that culture and also a victim of that mentality um and so it doesn't matter if you're a, a, a good person or a bad person once you're in that system um, no one is going to succeed. And so he found some real affection, um, and, and sympathy, uh, and, and love for, for the officers that he got to work with, not all of them. But I found that such an interesting critique, this ability to love the individuals and understand that it's the systems that are, that are, um, creating the destruction. Mm. Um, and, and just sorry, just, go ahead. So, mm -hmm. Just add one more thing because I, I I think as as I look across our country right now, on both the left and the right, I worry about our ability um, to to have that sense of compassion. 
and, and you know, the, the pushback I'll get is, you know, compassion is a luxury. Um, but, but I actually think it's an essential ingredient to, um, building this beloved community, um, that we want to build. Um, and you know, the example I think of is I was, um, I was at an elementary school and I was uh, waiting to meet with the principal and there was a, a young man, he's probably 10 or 11, who was waiting outside the principal's office and he was um, clearly got in trouble, he was clearly upset. He was doing that 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 thing I associate with with kids at that age where um, like he wanted to cry but didn't want people to know he was crying. Mm-hmm. It's like the, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. like the deep breathing. Um, and so I asked, him, I asked him what happened. He goes, it wasn't my fault, it wasn't my fault. I said, calm down. It's like, I just want to know what happened. And he told me the story of being out on recess and having someone uh, make fun of his mom. Hmm. Um, and, and, and so he, so we hit the kid, um, and then got in trouble for it. And I remember turning to him and saying, you know, if someone insulted my mama like that. I'd be so angry. I'd want to punch them too. I, I wouldn't, um, because at the end of the day, I don't think it's okay to hurt another person, but I would want to. Um, and I understand why you were so angry. That's all he needed to hear. Like he knew he shouldn't have punched the kid, but he wanted someone in authority to say, I get it. I get why you're angry. Um, and so what happens is that we conflate understanding with condoning um, and that it's possible to understand a situation and a person and a dynamic without saying it's okay. Um, and so that's why we can have compassion and anger. Mm-hmm. That's why we can um, love and care for a police officer and um, be distraught at the system um, that oppresses people. Mm-hmm. That, that mm-hmm. We, we can be big enough to hold both of those things. And in fact, I think we have to. It's time for another break. We're listening to Tom Paxton with Peace Will Come from 1972. When we return, we'll face the fact that our institutions and traditions, our culture itself, is a great barrier to change. Stay with us. Let it begin with me, oh my own life is all I can hope to control. Let my life be lived for the good. Our show today is Driving the Peace Train. My guest is Eric Dawson, author of Putting Peace First, Seven Commitments to Change the World. 
For this segment, Dawson talks about culture change. How can we adjust the cultural norms that tell us a gun in every hand is normal and that boys shouldn't cry? Eric Dawson's answer? Young people have an amazing sense of the possible. Well, it's one of those things that's hard because usually we have these conversations. You and I have a conversation about, again, I, I have, I, I keep saying the word left. I'm not sure how else to characterize this. Um, and I'm not trying to be specifically uh, divisive in this conversation, right? Your, your book is a beautiful way in which we, we begin to understand or try to understand the ways in which the world works around us and how we can work within it to try to attack and confront some kind of injustice that we, we can indicate in our, in our own lives and find out ways we can, we can deal with those things. But generally, we are uh, people who believe in, in the ability to make the world a better place, which means allowing people to feel free to become themselves, to have the opportunity through having appropriate resources, food, um, shelter, et cetera, et cetera. We talk about these things and they tend to fall onto political spectrum, right? But generally we're talking about left politics again. The problem I think is that for me, there's a way that is good and kind, right? There's a way in which I think of kindness and love, and I think of, you know, being able to make use of things like uh, social programs and to care for each other and shape a better future. But the this is not the case with the the half of the uh, the rest of the Western world in some ways, right? So we have a politics of division where. I want to reach out, but I also want to be kind of authoritarian in it. Right? I want to say there is a better way to be. It's not this way. Uh, and so I, I struggle with trying to understand how you move beyond you know, the minor small struggle within the system and then understand that the system is the problem. The system creates these people that are angry with each other. The system makes these things happen. Now, that's a problem for me to try to understand in individual strength, you know, individuals within these systems. How do we move to fighting back against those systems? I, I, um, I'm, <laughs> I'm with you, brother. I, um, <laughs> you know, as, as we were building our work, um, we were very, uh, and I've been a very traditional N NGO for our first 20 years. We ran programs in schools, teaching young people critical skills of peacemaking, and then and then really challenging them to embody that in in social change work, um, with with good consistent results. And so we replicated and we grew. And um, what one of my students was was murdered uh, walk, walking home from the subway, and mm. um, you know at his funeral as a principal was was leading um, his friends to, to his gravesite. They were moving in, in the opposite direction. And she called them over, and, and their response back to her was that they wanted to visit their other friends first. Mm. Right, This sense that we have 17-year-olds who have multiple friends that they've mm -hmm. lost to gun mm -hmm. violence. Mm -hmm. um, or I think about my own son who um, skinned his knee playing tag and started to cry and had a caring adult tell him that he needed to stop because mm -hmm. uh, he had to be a man. Um, right, right. Or when people tell me my, my girls are beautiful uh, but never smart, 
Um, you know, so we, we have a culture of violence. We have a culture of intolerance. Um, and what I realized is we were not going to solve that problem by opening up another five school partnerships mm. in Bloomington. Um, and so um, I got very interested in culture change as a driver of impact. Mm. So think about this triangle of impact where you've got direct service. How do we feed, clothe, teach, um, house people? Um, and then the second is about uh, policy. How do we use the levers of government, a large-scale philanthropy to, to move the needle um, the third is about culture change, and, and that's fundamentally changing the way that people see one another in, in relationship uh, to the world. Um, and so we spent a year um, working with a, with a firm um, studying movements over the past 120 years that had created new cultural norms, uh, from the workers' rights movements that had given us a concept of the weekend, all the way up to marriage equality, the Arab Spring, um, and wanted to understand what all of these um, movements had in common. It was a fascinating piece of research. Um, the one thing that every single one of these movements shared um, is that they were often led by, but always powered by young people. Mm -hmm. um, that young people are our most powerful uh, creators of culture, uh, whether that's music or fashion or values. Young people are, are building and imagining the world that, that you and I will grow old in. Um, and what we realized was that nobody was, was tapping into that. This is Doug Storm on Interchange. My guest is Eric Dawson, CEO and co-founder of Peace First and author of Putting Peace First, Seven Commitments to Change the World, who tells young people that they aren't the future we're waiting for, but the present we need now. Anne Isnin, the, the, the French writer, uh, wrote that, that we see the world as we are. We don't see the world as it is. Hmm. Um, and so we are often so limited by the constructs that we have built, or as you've pointed out, that we've grown up in. Um, and in many, many cases, young people are not bound by that. Um, the, the question I'm most often asked on panels is if I could go back in time and do it all over again, what, what would I do differently? And I, I usually give some answer about I would have done this faster, or done this slower, or done this better. Um, but if I'm really honest, if I had to go back and do it all over again, I, I wouldn't do it. Because mm. what 18-year-old starts a nonprofit? <laughs> like, I, I had no business doing what I was doing. I didn't mm. know what I was doing. Um, but I did. And, and I did because of my proximity to the problem um, and because I wasn't embedded in, in these systems um, that told me that I, that I can't. Mm -hmm. Um, and so as I meet and connect with these young people all over the world, they have this amazing sense of the possible. Um, and, um, you know, so as I think about this, this kind of social change, this, this, this revolution, um, it's happening. It just, um, it happens slowly. Mm -hmm. Um, and it happens in ways that we don't always see. Um, uh, history is not linear. Um, 
Uh, you'll appreciate this. I was on a panel. <laughs> People ask you all sorts of crazy crap on panels. And, and the question I was asked is if I could go back in time and murder Hitler, would I do it? Um, <laughs> and so the person next to me, one of my mentors actually said, yeah, <laughs> you know, I'm not a big, I'm not a big fan of, of murder. Um, but yeah, if I could have stopped this person from doing this level of destruction, I, I would have done it. And and everyone looked at me um, excited for, for whatever brilliance was going to come out of my mouth. And, you know, all I could say is, is I don't know, mm-hmm. um, you know, as, as, uh, as someone who's a, a Jewish mother whose you know, family escaped Europe because of the persecution, um, I don't know if I'd be here mm-hmm. um, if it wasn't for you know, My kids wouldn't be alive. Um, and, you know, that, that, that's not to, to, to make me a Hitler fan, um, but, but only to reflect that the – um, pathway to change is not linear. Mm. Um, we have President Trump because we had President Obama, and we had President Obama because we had President Bush. Um, these things are connected, um, and social change is messy. Um, and so, therefore, we have to lean into what we know, um, which is um, what's in our proximal community. Right, right. Well, you know, you call uh, the the uh, your I guess the kids uh, in the example here, the young adults for the most part. You call them peacemakers, and I assume it's a term you use as part of the organization. Is it intended, or does it? I mean, is it just meant to have an echo to the the Jesus uh, Sermon on the Mount? You know, blessed are the peacemakers. Um, no, I, I love the question, and um, you know, I, I think that we wanted to create uh, a term that felt both deeply historic and resonant. Um, you know, not just with, with Jesus, but Muhammad, Buddha, it's a really deep concept, um, that, that, you know, just kind of sits in your soul, um, and, um, make it active, um, you know, make it, make it something that was about doing and creating. And so that's why it's, it's peacemaking. Um, and it's that, it's the making that matters. It's the creation. It's, it's the stepping up. Time for our final break. This is Peacekeeper by Fleetwood Mac. Stay with us for Commitment 7. Keep trying. Successful peacemaking requires a heaping serving of perseverance. More driving the peace train when Interchange returns on WFHP.
only thought you'd had your fill Take all the time you will This is not a test, it's not a drill Take no prisoners, only Back to driving the peace train on interchange. I'm Doug Storm. Peace First CEO Eric Dawson is our guest. He's the author of Putting Peace First. In our final segment, we hear about the distinction between peacemaking and community service projects. And we hear about failure, the necessary fact of commitment. Failure is a large part of the process. Commitment seven is keep trying. Finally, he reminds the adults in the room that the question we all need to ask of our children is, how can I help? Uh, your book uh, offers seven commitments and then seven examples of those commitments. And as you says, uh, ends as a kind of how-to or an instruction to, to start to put those things into practice. Are there? Uh, do you want to run through uh, just uh, a few of these commitments or do you want to say them all? You can certainly do that if you'd like. You could, they wouldn't take long to, to rattle off, I suppose. It's like asking someone, like, which is your favorite child? Um, <laughs> you know, so it was you interesting have one, writing. Though, tell the truth. <laughs> <laughs> it's writing. Yeah, they're probably listening. It's interesting writing this because I really, like, I wanted to write a manifesto. Right. I wanted to write a updated rules for radicals. I, I wanted to write something that was not, was not just, um, you know, a laundry list about about being good. Mm-hmm. Um, but I wanted to talk about how um, complex it is to be a peacemaker. That it's hard. Um, you know, so, you know, there's, there's this idea about taking a stand, uh, which is both about standing up for an idea, taking a risk. Um, and it's also understanding that taking a stand is sometimes about sitting down and being quiet about creating space for other people to, to lead, um, the, the piece around bringing others along. Um, you know, we often think about, we often think about social change as as leaders in moments, right? The civil rights movement is Dr. King and right. Selma, but but you and I both know that the civil rights movement was hundreds of thousands of people, often women, often young people, sitting around kitchen tables and in church pews, deciding they were going to be different. Um, so I, I'm less interested in in raising a generation of of heroes and martyrs. And super excited about um, raising a network of connected uh, individuals. Um, and, and I'll say that the hardest commitment to name, and the one I got the most pushback on, is is called uh, "work with your enemies." Mm-hmm. Um, people really were uncomfortable with the idea of the word "enemies." Right. Um, and um, so, of course, I left it in there uh, <laughs> because you know we are supposed to be uncomfortable. Sure. In our yeah. Work. Yeah. Um, and um, you know that was the the chapter where where I talk about um, Babatunde and his mm-hmm. work with, with the police and 
um, you know, the, 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 the language that we often think about in, in, in this concept is unlikely allies. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, so we have this platform, you know, peacefirst.org that supports young people to design social justice projects. And, uh, as we help them design it, they need to go out and interview people who are affected by the injustice they want to solve. Um, and they've got to interview people who are invested in the injustice. Right. They need to understand what keeps them up at night. Um, and that, to me, is what makes it a peacemaking project and not just a great community service project, um, is that involvement, um, uh, that generosity of, of, of understanding and inviting people in. Um, and, of course, I think the, the, the most important commitment is, is to keep trying. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, I, that, that story is about Mary Pat, who, um, you know, as a, as a teenager had been to more funerals than uh, graduations because of gun violence. And um, she wanted to use the concept of shock ads, uh, what, what folks use to get people not to use drugs or not to smoke um, around gun violence. Um, and so she called her campaign Think Twice, like Think Twice Before Picking Up a Gun. Um, and everyone turned her down. Um, people wouldn't, wouldn't give her money. She finally raised some money to put up billboards. They rejected her billboards. Um, she had a well-known civil rights icon, uh, take her project and, and, um, try to pass it off as her own. Um, and, um, you know, the thing I'm most unhappy about with the book, and and I just couldn't fix this, is my, my worries that young people will read these stories, you know, Baba Tunde training two thirds of the Baltimore police force, Wee Chen organized an eight day boycott of his high school, um, and say, that's amazing, and, and I can't do that. Mm. Um, and, and so my, 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 my last commitment, and, and the reason I wanted Mary Pat's story there, is to remind all of us um, that so much of what we do is going to involve failure. Right? You, have, you have a baseball player who's you know, batting you know, 333. You know, that means they're, they're striking out two-thirds of the time. Um, and so I really wanted the message to young people to be that um, failure is, is part of the part of the process. This is Doug Storm on Interchange. My guest is Eric Dawson, CEO and co-founder of Peace First and author of Putting Peace First. Seven Commitments to Change the World, who tells young people that they aren't the future we're waiting for, but the present we need now. The examples are good, and as you say, it is a it is a hard thing to to put yourself in those places. Again, you know, we question the capacity for for being able to even have the energy to do some of these things, right. Or to get other people involved in, in these issues. And, um, it's, 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 it's impressive. Right. Um, and your book tries, I think it does a great job to be honest with you. I think I was really as impressed with the, your instructions at the end, you know, the, the ways to go about these things. I, I, I said to myself, you know, this is a good book for anybody. It's not a kid's book. It's not an elementary or secondary school book. It, I was really impressed with it. So, uh, hopefully I'll make use of it as well. I appreciate that. 
it's it's easy for me to say, man, I just don't see how the system changes because it's just so hard uh, day in and day out to do any any news reporting, any journalism, uh, to see the world as it is, to see uh, the structures in place. And, and as you say, to, to recognize that youth energizes some of this, that most of the changes happen in, in youth uh, and, and these sort of vital responses against injustice. Uh, and as you point out again, we the system via economic purposes in some ways right creates our little silos of self uh self image self uh self response then these silos uh do not reach out right they're they're we we contain ourselves within these entertainment facilities as much as anything else so it's one of those things to try to it's almost a struggle now or a courageous thing to even say hello to somebody you know what one of my all-time favorite projects um was a was a, a young girl in new york city and you know the first thing that she did when she walked in the lunchroom every day is is find that one student that nobody was sitting with and, and went and sit with that student every day that's what she did and we can all do that. Like, like we can all make those individual choices. Um, Albie Sachs, who was the Supreme Court justice in South Africa at the time of the end of apartheid there, wrote that all social change is impossible until it happens yeah, right. and then it was inevitable. Right. Um, and so, you know, if, if I could, if I could leave you and your listeners with, with one final thought, it, it it's this, that I, that I think the, the four most important words that we can speak to a young person, uh, particularly in that moment of, of obligation, of, of anger, of concern, of excitement, um, is how can I help? Um, because that does two things. One is it is um, offering resources uh, to, to a young person uh, who needs it. Um, and it's also putting the young person in the driver's seat of what that help looks like. And the people have the power to redeem the work of fools. From the meek, the graces shower. It's decreed the people rule. That's our show. We'll close with Patti Smith's People Have the Power from the 1988 album Dream of Life. Thanks to Eric Dawson for his life work, as well as his new book, both a manifesto and a workbook for peace. Putting Peace First, Seven Commitments to Change the World. It was just published by Viking Press. Next time on Interchange, From the Good War to the Forever War. U.S. involvement in Vietnam actually began during the 1940s rather than the 1960s meaning this country has been at war abroad without interruption since World War II, truly a forever war. Cultural historian H. Bruce Franklin joins us to offer a crash course on how the United States, 
the mightiest nation in the history of the planet, began to forever fight unwinnable wars under a dysfunctional government despised by an increasingly divided citizenry. From the good war to the forever war. Coming up on Interchange, Tuesdays at 6 p.m. on WFHB. I'm Doug Storm. Thanks for listening. I produce Interchange. Our executive producer is Wes Martin. Stay tuned for the Jazz Menagerie. Coming up next on your community radio station, WFHB.